Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Matt Simmons with the New Books Network, American South Channel, speaking today with journalist Claudia Smith Brinson about her book, Stories of Struggle, The Clash Over Civil Rights in South Carolina. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me today, Claudia. Oh, I'm, I'm so encouraged that you asked and so pleased. Great. So let me just start uh, by saying I really enjoyed your book. And to do it justice, we'd probably need to chat longer than we really have today. Uh, my plan is to focus on some specific themes as best we can with the time we have. But first, if you would mind giving us just sort of a short mini autobiography, just hitting some of the highlights of your professional background, I think listeners would appreciate that. Well, I'm going to start off with something non-professional, which is that I was a military brat, and that was a very long time ago, but I lived 16 places by the time I had finished college. And I think that really shaped who I was going to be. Four of those years, by the way, were in Japan. Um, If you are moving around constantly, you don't have um, steady affiliations, you can become sort of a junior anthropologist and investigator because you're going into different cultures and different social groups frequently, and you've got to figure out how people work and how different cultures and societies work. And so um, when I started high school, I was lucky enough to be in a high school that had um, newspapers for each class and newspaper for the entire school and a literary magazine. And I started doing that. And I went from being a shy person to someone with a reporter's pad who could talk to anybody about anything because I was always been a very curious kid. And so that's how I figured out I was going to be a journalist. Um, Oddly enough, my father had not paid um, taxes for any state, so I was not the resident of any state in the United States. So when it came time for college, I had to figure out, and and there was no money, um, how I was going to pay for college and how I could become in state somewhere. And that became South Carolina, where I talked the law school dean into declaring me an in-state resident because my father had gone into World War II from that state. So that's how I became acquainted with South Carolina. Um, I got my undergraduate degrees there, two of them in English and journalism. I had exempted a lot of courses where I could do two degrees in four years. Um, Went off, came back for a master's degree in journalism, and I worked at newspapers in Greece and Florida before um, joining a South Carolina newspaper. And because of that sort of anthropological, investigative, uh, let me check out the culture and that intense curiosity I had, I had decided very early on that I was interested in education, but I did not want what is the typical goal for journalists, which is um, the state house. I wanted to be talking to everybody because that had been my life. I had grown up in, in a, on a military base when uh, the military was desegregated. I had lived in different um, countries. And so I was interested, if you'll forgive the phrase, not in what was at the state legislature at that time, which was elderly Southern gentlemen, but in women and children and minorities and poverty. And so I persuaded the paper over time to let me have that large portfolio. And I spent five years writing um, with a focus on poverty because South Carolina at this point in time was often number 49 in in the bad things like um, uh, early deaths of children, um, lower educational levels, Um, uh, extreme poverty. And 
in that time period, I met um, a lot of black elders and I had, I was uncomfortable with um, South Carolina's racial attitudes. And um, my conversations with black elders convinced me that the official story of South Carolina, which was that it was not Alabama or Mississippi, even though it was at 48 or 49 along with them, but that it was a polite and mannerly society that uh, just was not as brutal uh, about race. I, I, I decided from the stories I was hearing that this was a false narrative. And that really troubled me. And so I began making an effort to uh, talk to as many black elders as I could and to push the newspaper to do a better job of covering a wider range of people. And because I did well at my job and because I loved it and I won lots of awards, I got more freedom than maybe some folks might have um, with that kind of interest and attitude. And so that led me over time to... um, other people encouraging me to think about the fact that I probably knew more about the race relations of the civil rights movement than almost anybody in the state because I had talked to such a diversity of people and that I should start thinking about a book. At this point, I was a single parent and I was sort of, ha ha, you know, how am I going to fit that into my life? But it became, it became Matt sort of a, a spiritual quest um, because the people I talked to were so brave and so noble in that they knew whatever they accomplished was not going to benefit them, but the people of the future, that I started feeling it was, it was you might even call it a moral obligation. And so um, that meant that Stories of Struggle was written over a great many years because I had a full-time job and a full-time parenting. Um, and it uh, became a book that because of my wide range of interests, was a little larger than what actually was published. For example, I have chapters on two different ministers, Reverend um, Kenton, who was the uh, second president of the state conference in the NAACP, and Reverend Ivory, who um, led a bus, very successful bus drive in Rock Hill, as, as well as many other accomplishments. But the original book had an entire chapter on Black ministers. So the book shrank a little um, as the interviews grew, and USC Press published it in um, uh, 2020, uh, right as COVID started, which was an un- unfortunate. But um, word got around. Um, I was a trusted reporter, so uh, the Black community was really interested in the book and trusted um me and uh, that's how I got so many of the interviews and so I ended up doing a lot of um, Zooms often with black families whose um, relatives were in the book and who did not know all the stories of their relatives. So um, one of the things that helped me finish the book was I had left uh, the state paper in 2006 to go teach full-time at Columbia College which is a small women's college in Columbia and um, that gave me a pause and sort of a refresher. And in 2016, because I was worried I would be gone before the book was published, um, I uh, left Columbia College to finish the book, to write full time. So this was a project that was years and years in the making, is what it sounds like, um, which allowed you to devote a lot of time to collecting interviews because there were more than 100 interviews? Was that? I, I talked to more than 150 Black activists. Now, keep in mind, uh, you know, for Reverend Ivory, I might have talked to 10 people, you know, for example. So um, it's not that there were 150 
different specific interviews on specific different people, but that, you know, I'm accumulating interviews on a variety of people. Right. Still really incredible. Um, you know, even with my oral history background, oftentimes we, we write on, on less than that on a specific topic, which I think is interesting. Um, so it, it sounds like you weren't really a native Southerner, so, but your father was from South Carolina. So was it a shock to you when you came stateside after living on so many military bases to kind of see the way the South was organized and, and, and kind of structured still in some ways and how it was talked about, the, the civil rights movement? Uh, my father actually was not a native. His father was an Episcopal priest who moved around a lot. He just happened to be at the University of South Carolina when he volunteered to go to war. Um, but my mother's family had deep roots in South Carolina, and my father's father had been born in South Carolina. But because we moved around so much and my parents weren't particularly close to their parents, I really had very little contact with South Carolina, but a lot of contact with the Southern way of life because my parents were deep South kind of people with their own biases, um, which I noticed early on. So when I came to South Carolina, um, I came with both that idea as a military brat that every place is different, but all people are essentially the same and that we we want happiness, we don't want to suffer, uh, you know, um, but that there are peculiarities to, to cultures. And so I was noticing that. Um, and I should add here that South Carolina had not desegregated its schools um, until 1970. And um, the universities were slow to do this. South Carolina was the last or the next to last, I can't remember, um, to desegregate its uh, Clemson, its colleges and universities, and you know, USC followed. So I was uh, coming to college in the 70s um, after all this had happened, but noticing the attitudes you know, about, about that and, um, and what, just watching, learning, and listening. And I left South Carolina for Greece and then came back um, in the late 70s, which is when I earned my master's in mass communications. And um, was, I was still paying attention and I have continued to pay attention to this false narrative about what South Carolina was and is and who gets to tell the story. You know, as a journalist and a storyteller, I find that very interesting. Um, who gets to tell the story certainly affects who is in the story and how the story's told, what's left out, as well as what's put in. Okay, and that's a great jumping off point. So thinking about desegregation in South Carolina, uh, you certainly spend a large portion of the book talking about that, but you also talk about this evolution that's happening really at the national level in different places, You know, pushing back against desegregation as we're moving into the 40s, 50s, and 60s, how it's moving from higher education, Texas State University, the University of Oklahoma, really down to the K-12 system. Uh, even in Clarendon County, right, where you focus some time as well. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that evolution and what that looks like in terms of where civil rights activists are starting to push um, to make changes to that and how it eventually works its way towards uh, South Carolina and Clarendon County? South Carolina is always a part of the picture, but sometimes it's been a part of the picture that's missed. So the 14th Amendment is very important to this story. And as you know, the 14th Amendment uh, has both a due process and an equal protection clause. Um, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States 
nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So Charles Hamilton Houston, who was a World War I veteran um, and dean of Howard University's law school, and then um, the first illegal um, head of the NAACP, um, and Thurgood Marshall then stepped an expanded role there. In the 1930s, he had already decided that the 14th Amendment was the way to pursue um, challenging separate but equal, and that education and higher education, because he thought it would be less fraught socially, was the direction to go. But he came to South Carolina in 1934-35 and went around the state documenting the incredible um, poverty and um, the sad shabbiness and restrictions of um, black schools. And he did this with a handheld um, silent movie camera. And he made a movie that he showed around to the NAACP. Um, you can see this movie at um, archive.org. Um, it's called A Study of Educational Inequalities in South Carolina. It's just stunning. So he already had his eye on South Carolina. And so there were several, um, as you mentioned, uh, lawsuits uh, in different states, um, Murray versus Pearson, Missouri, Israel, Gaines v. Canada. Um, in South Carolina, Charles Bailey wanted to get into the USC Law School, and Hamilton thought he was not the best candidate and it was not the best state at that point in time. But in 1946, John Wrighton um, persuaded the NAACP to support him and um, uh, challenging for a USC law school. And at about this time, Jay Wadey's Waring, who was a Charleston aristocrat, had had an awakening and um, because of a lynching. And he ordered the state of South Carolina in the Wrighton lawsuit to open in 1947 um, a law school for uh, black students because there was nowhere for black students to go in the state or allow black students enter USC or close the USC law school and have no law school in the state. And what South Carolina did was separate and as usual for South Carolina, horribly unequal. They had one classroom and two professors and almost no law books opened at South Carolina state. Thurgood Marshall was actually rather angry about this. He called it a Jim Crow dump, but the lawsuits continued. Um, and as the lawsuits continued, um, people were, of course, awakening to this enormous success. You know, Thurgood Marshall became Mr. Civil Rights. And uh, by 1950, uh, in June, there is a sort of convergence of uh, successes with Sweat v. Painter and McLaurin versus Oklahoma, where the U.S. Supreme Court is saying uh, the uh, uh, the education for human sweat is uh, separate and inferior. And George McLaurin was restricted. He was uh, had to sit out in a hall, for example, to attend a class. And that this violated the Equal Protection Clause. And there was a celebration about this. And the NAACP um, met in July and started talking about, okay, let's go for the full relief, and, uh, the final relief of non-segregation. And um, this segues with the fact that um, Reverend James Hinton, who is the 
um, president of the state conference. I mentioned him earlier. He has been very successful in his relationship with Thurgood Marshall and pursuing lawsuits to end the white, all-white primary. South Carolina had the last all-white primary in the nation. And to um, challenge unequal teacher pay, Black teachers had... Um, three to four times the number of students as white teachers and yet were paid uh, a fourth of white teachers were paid. And they challenged that successfully. And then the John Wrighton lawsuit was successful. So Hinton was very much into education is the way to go too. And so he challenged um, in an NAACP state meeting after going to this national meeting in July, um, he wanted a minister um, and we should talk about ministers as you want to. Um, that's that's going to be the next question. You're, you're yeah. preempting me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, to think about school buses. This was a place that they thought they could start because a Virginia attorney had just simply taken some students to a school bus stop, put them on a white school bus, and then cha- has challenge had succeeded from there. And um, so Somerton, South Carolina, which was deeply poor, not ideal. Thurgood Marshall almost skipped Briggs versus Elliott because he thought the petitioners would be in such great danger, became the place where Brown versus Board of Education started because a minister who was close to Hinton and rather bold and brave himself like Hinton um, decided that Somerton was the place to do this. And one of the reasons for his decision was that Children were walking. Um, I should add here, there were almost no black high schools at this point. Um, so children were walking to Somerton, South Carolina, from places like Davis Station, nine miles. And I interviewed some of those um, people. Uh, they were walking. It took them well over an hour, of course, to get to school. They would walk in the rain. South Carolina actually occasionally had snow. They were challenged by dogs on dirt roads. Um Piney Witherspoon told me, um, Piney Pearson Witherspoon told me that they kept collecting cardboard to put in their shoes um, because their shoes would wear out. So uh, they would wear multiple layers of of clothes in the winter. Um, And so Summerton um, became the place where Briggs versus Elliott started and then Brown versus the Board of Education. And uh, after the bus lawsuit became tentative because through some sort of shady shenanigans, the Pearson family was challenged on their bus challenge um, as to whether they were in the right school district. Uh, Marshall wanted to withdraw because he saw how mean and vindictive and violent Somerton was. Um, the Pearsons were getting all sorts of death threats. They were fire, people were firing, white people were firing into the Pearson's home. The children had to sleep on the floor. And he wanted to pull out and a delegation, uh, Reverend Delane was the minister that was heavily involved with their two others, uh, Reverend Seals and Reverend Richburg. Uh, they gathered um, a, a delegation of about 20 people, some of them, their relatives, and went and passionately pleaded with uh, Marshall that there was will in, in Somerton. And so Somerton became the place that the lawsuit started for initially equality in education. They wanted books, they wanted buses, and then for f- full desegregation. Right. And I'm glad you, you brought up kind of the inherent inequality in the system. Um, you know, I, I teach young students, uh, you know, 18 to, to 22, and it's hard for them sometimes to fathom 
the, the levels of inequality. So even to get to the schools, you highlighted, you know, walking miles and miles, not having decent shoes. And then, of course, when you get to the schools, you know, you might not have indoor plumbing, you might not have electricity, there's not enough books, you know, there's cracks in the walls, you're using kind of ramshackle, you know, hunting lodges or old Masonic lodges that, that have been abandoned. So I'm, I'm glad that you highlighted that. Uh, but what I find really interesting, and you brought up Reverend Hinton already, and then Reverend Ivory, is just the role of the Black church and Black ministers. So if you could talk a little bit about that, because when we think about churches, we usually think about them, um, you know, as only being there for kind of spiritual support. Uh, maybe they'll evangelize local communities, or maybe they'll have a small kind of close-knit community, but really focusing more on spiritual needs than necessarily physical needs or social needs. So if you could talk a little bit about the Black church and some of these ministers like Hinton and Ivory, I think that would be really, really helpful. I'd love to, um, because I'm so fond of these people. Some of the people I met, I truly love. They were just amazing human beings. So as a reporter, you might think, was a reporter doing writing a book? Um, I wrote a lot of I used to joke, I come from the land of the 180th story. A lot of news stories now are 10 inches. <laughs> um, I um, was used to writing what they call big takeouts, big, big projects um, where I'm looking for patterns. And I saw pretty early on the pattern of black ministers as leaders. And I'm saying ministers, not churches, you'll notice. Um, and there's some reasons for that. Um, which I, you know, I checked out. I always, anything I came up with on my own, I always asked people about. Um, so black ministers were often educated. Um, th- there was an, uh, an effort, for example, to say the Methodist church or the AME to have ministers that had gone past high school. Um, that wasn't necessarily true, for example, for the Baptist church, although Reverend Hinton was a Baptist, but they had maybe more education than, and, there, and it was single digit percentage of white or black people in South Carolina that had a college education. They had more education than most people in um, their uh, area, their geographic area. They also were uh, men, men of God. And um, frankly, that made it a little more awkward and difficult to kill them. And I do mean murder. There were people that were murdered in South Carolina, of course. And um, they had an audience, a ready audience. Now, I'm not saying an audience that agreed with them, but, you know, they were um, preaching uh, regularly. And a lot of ministers, because um, there was almost no pay, were going to multiple churches in a community that they were driving maybe into more than one county and going to many, many communities um, on various Sundays, you know, rotating among them. They were often also principals or teachers to supplement their income. So they had the audience of the parents of the children. So they had a large audience. So they were respected, they were educated, and they had audiences. Um, And so that was a good combination. And what happens is that uh, there is, of course, a convergence between Christian beliefs and equality, you know, that all are equal in the eyes of God, for example. And so there were ways to talk about Christian beliefs that included um, rights. 
and churches um, as community areas, you know, I mean, community gathering spots where you didn't just go to church on Sunday, you might stay all day. Um, you might come on Wednesday for, um, you know, Bible study. You might come for a pancake supper. Um, it was a center of community, especially in rural areas. You might um, have a voter registration um, uh, class. So there, there are places where political activism can happen and can happen relatively safely, although churches were burned and churches were dynamited. And so um, ministers become sort of a a natural um, gathering point and spokesperson for um, the the movement of equality. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard in the 21st century in some ways to imagine how essential these black churches are, like you're highlighting in rural areas. This is the center um, of a lot of communities. And of course, um, you know, I've been to some black church services. I've been to white churches and sometimes the services are longer, right? So it's just, it can be more involved, um, which is also, I think, really, really interesting in terms of thinking about culture. Um, and something, one passage I thought that was interesting in your book was this posse of preachers that came to rescue. Um, I believe it was Hinton. Um, yeah. Was, yeah, there was, wasn't, you weren't necessarily entirely safe. Reverend Hinton had his house surrounded by the KKK and in 1949, after the he was making effort for the College of Charleston to be desegregated, as well as as the USC Law School a year or two before, and the the building toward uh, Briggs, he was kidnapped. He was a um, a Pilgrim Life Insurance um, director eventually, but at this point, um, a a coordinator and salesperson who worked in both Augusta, which is right on the border of South Carolina and Georgia, and uh, in Columbia. And his, his children were in Columbia. He was in the Augusta boarding house. He would stay over some nights. There was a knock on the door. A white man said that someone had hit Hinton's car on the street. Hinton came out in his pajamas and slippers. Three men grabbed him, threw him into the car. His landlady saw it happen. A white neighbor of hers saw it happen. They both got on the phone calling the police, calling allies, calling everybody they could think of to say that he had been taken away. Um, he was taken off into the woods. Um, he was blindfolded. It was uh, several cars by this point. And they blindfolded him, chained him to a tree. They had their headlights on and were quizzing him. And because of the alerts sent out, there was actually something on the radios that were turned on on one of the cars um, saying that he had been kidnapped. They also had decided by this point that they might have the wrong person. And so they left um, and told him that he was to lie on the ground until they were long gone. He walked back for two hours before a bus picked him up um, in his pajamas, barefoot. And um, he had been beaten severely while he was chained to the tree with chains. He um, joked later, uh, he wrote Thurgood Marshall about it. Um, he joked later that there was a whole posse of preachers out looking for him and it was good for their immortal souls that they didn't find the kidnappers. And that was how he was. He, he went back to work the next day. People saw him all bruised and cut. His daughter said that was just who he was. Uh, he went back to work the next day, and he said there was a, um, a celebration to honor his survival. And he told the people attending that he had decided long ago he had a life to give, and if he had to give it, he would for equality. And what he called, I love this phrase, first-class citizenship. Right, right. 
And you, and you highlight a lot of these incidences uh, of violence um, in, in the book, but you also highlight even uh, instances of economic violence. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that, because we hear a lot about the lynchings and the beatings, and those are absolutely horrific and terrible things, but a pressure is being applied in a lot of different ways in, in pushing back against these pushes towards desegregating schools. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the different kinds of pressure that are forming against the African-American community. Yeah, so there's there are many ways to destroy a person, aren't there? They're not not just physical destruction. So um, after Brown v. Board in '54, and there were two decisions, um, you know, to uh, declaring segregation unconstitutional in public schools. Uh, the first one was that declaration, and the second one was well, what to do about it. And in that time period, um, in Mississippi, the white citizens councils were formed, and uh, this formation was business people and wealthy farmers um, who were determined to maintain segregation. Um, and it immediately caught on in South Carolina because the local attorney, Emory Rogers for Briggs versus Elliott, was uh, uh, <laughs> just a supreme white segregationist. And he started going all around the state starting white citizen councils and thousands of people, um, more than 5,000 in the first year, joined um, the councils around um, the Somerton area where this lawsuit had, had first begun. And so these white citizens councils, uh, they, were, they, they were fond of themselves. They felt that they were uh, doing everything legally and that they were the premier citizens. And so uh, whatever they did was right and correct. And they were just absolutely horrified, appalled, disgusted, take every <laughs> um, description you can imagine there, that people were daring to challenge you know, how, how they ran the towns, and uh, especially racially. So what the white citizens councils did was they were in cahoots with the white-owned newspapers. And the white-owned newspapers, when there was a desegregation petition, and immediately the NAACP had encouraged after Brown II um, for people to petition for desegregation of their local school districts, they would print the names of all the petitioners. And you, as a white business person or a merchant um, or employer of some sort, were expected to fire anybody whose name was on the petition and any of their relatives. If you had a sharecropper, they were to be evicted. If somebody um, had a mortgage, it was to be called in by the banker. Um, if someone was paying rent, they were be, to be evicted. If they um, had any sort of debt, um, for example, Robert Georgia, who had signed the petition in Somerton, had two mules. He was a truck farmer. His They tried to take his mules and his neighbors gathered around and and collected the money to pay off his mules. So there was nothing too small for them, you know, to um, go after to, to make your life um, miserable and make it impossible. One of their goals for you to stay because you couldn't support your family. So Harry Briggs and Eliza Briggs, for example, um, Harry that was Briggs v. Elliott. Uh, Harry Briggs was a gas station attendant, and on Christmas Eve he was given a box of cigarettes and fired. And his wife was working at a motel as a housekeeper. She was fired. She went to a second motel as well as two other female petitioners. Um, that motel, the Somerton Motel, did hire them. But then 
the owner, the white owner, was told that if he didn't immediately fire them, and he told them this because he was hoping he could persuade them to take their names off the petition, that all the water and sewage would be cut off to his motel. So um, there was the Briggs family with no income. Um, one of their children um, decided to try older children to, to drive a bus. He was, uh, there were death threats against him. So his mother said, no, you have to stop doing that. Um, Annie Gibson, another petitioner, um, she, she was one of the women who was working at the motels. They were sharecroppers. They were kicked off their land. So these organ, these uh, white citizen councils were watched by the FBI, but even the FBI said in its reports, uh, these are the high-class citizens of the town. <laughs> you know? um, Ernest Hollings, who was a uh, lieutenant governor at the time, was going to speak to the citizens councils and supportive of them. Um, when the state association was formed, um, the governor Burns um, uh, Strom Thurmond um, and uh, other associated uh, very powerful people, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, were all on the stage um, supporting the Citizens Council. So this was a, a statewide power broker effort um, that was supported publicly by um, officials and um, made lives very difficult. And I should add here that many families did leave and you know, they profited by that because their kids got a better education and many of these families um, followed up with much better lives. They got better jobs. For example, um, Piney Withers, Pearson Witherspoon's uh, family went up to um, work in the auto industry in the factories and managed to have a very um, uh, well-funded life very different from what it had been in South Carolina. But that is not to say there weren't terrible losses. The families were split up. Harry Briggs went to Florida for a while. So Nathaniel, the youngest, grew up for several years without his father, who was looking for jobs everywhere. Um, they lost the, the communities that they had and the tight communities that they had in their towns. Um, some of them um, suffered greatly economically. Not everybody was a great success. Um, and... Uh, some were run out, and the trauma of that was very difficult for them. Willie Stukes, whose uh, wife, uh, Gardenia, um, and children signed the petition, he was fired from his job as a gas station attendant, and the White Citizens Council was going after him to prevent him from getting any other job. So he started repairing cars in his backyard, and a car fell on him, and he died. So, uh, so the White Citizens Council's were claiming they weren't the KKK, but the, the violence they did to people's lives were, while not lynchings, they were as terrible. They were terrible. Right, Op operating out of the same principles, but maybe in different ways. But um, you know, the level of pettiness that I think you highlight is just interesting, right? There's a cow that's taken to jail. Um, you know, there's one individual who can only sell firewood through somebody else, right? So you have to use intermediaries and brokers to basically make a living. And it's just hard to kind of imagine having to do that, um, you know, with a family to support. Yeah, the, the Pearsons who did the very first lawsuit, which was the unsuccessful bus lawsuit, um, their children were in terror every day about food because they were convinced somebody would poison their father. Um, nobody would give um, it, the, it was uh, two brothers, uh, Levi and Hammett, nobody would give them or their sons rides into town because they were afraid to be associated with them. 
and as you mentioned, it was actually the, the Pearsons um, firewood. They had to go out of the county to other uh, friends and relatives to um he, he sold wood since he couldn't farm his crops because no one would sell him seed and he couldn't borrow the equipment. Um, Mary Oliver, uh, her husband died in 51 and she had continued to support the petitioners and she had signed the petition and she had a cafe that was a family cafe. Her husband was driving at when he, before he was passing on, obviously. Um, he was driving the back roads um, to to do his jukeboxes um, in the dark with his headlights off, which is pretty dangerous because um, people would know his car and could stop and kill him. And one of my favorite quotes from anybody was when he was dying, he told her she had to pursue this. They, they taught voter registration um, uh, abilities in their cafe that she had to continue with this. And she said, I promised him I'd be a real woman. Yeah. It's a great quote. Um, and even with all of that uh, kind of <laughs> different tactics that are being used, both economic, um, both just outright violence, th- these cases are working their way through the system. And something I thought really fascinating that uh, maybe you could provide some context on is that at, at one point, the government of South Carolina, they're just ready to shut down the entire public school system as a response to what's going on. So basically just burn everything to the ground apparently was a better option than than going forward with desegregation. That kind of makes your jaw drop, doesn't it? It does, it really does. Yeah, well, uh, I I think South Carolina has a complicated relationship with education. (laughs) I really do. And that's speaking to someone who was an education reporter for several years. So, what happened was, as Briggs versus Elliott was going to court, uh, there were two governors. There would be Timmerman and then Burns. There was a decision to um, apply the first sales tax in the state and do what were called equalization schools because Robert McCormick Figg, who was a very canny political operative as well as an attorney, who was the first attorney for the Briggs v. Elliott cases, um, he told the governors... Um, we we can't we can't win on equal these school you know I mean the, as you as you said these are falling down shacks with no heat no windows no school desks no school books there's no way they could pretend equal and so what they did with that and and the bond referendum was they tried to do what were then called equalization schools so they they did. Uh, equalize salaries, although they had some tricks there about certification, and they started busily building better schools. Um, And they uh, also started busily doing all sorts of legislation. Um, Among the things uh, that they did was they allowed superintendents to be able to transfer anybody they wanted to from one district to another so that you could create all white school districts. Um, they said that any school that um, did receive uh, a, a black child could be closed by the superintendent. They didn't have to go to the state. Um, and all the state guaranteed um, in the reconstruction, uh, post, excuse me, post-reconstruction uh, constitution was that there would be a school system and that it would be separate for black and white. There was no guarantee about, you know, educational quality. So, 
Um, Burns and 55 urged the majority of white voters, keep in mind there's there's been an all-white primary until uh, a few years before this, urged white South Carolinians to approve amendment to the Constitution to remove the state's responsibility to provide any public schools. In other words, you, you, you lose the lawsuit, you just shut down all the schools. And it was a two-to-one yes. So two-to-one white South Carolinians uh, said, yes, we'd rather have no education than desegregated education. And um, a North Carolina editor wrote something, this is something way beyond secession from the union. This is secession from civilization. And um, one of the, uh, the other tricks was they, they uh, had been doing some consolidation because there had been a thousand school districts. One school could be a school district. And when they started the equalization effort, they were consolidating school districts, but they made school districts white or black. So majority black counties would have, you know, uh, where there were white people carved out. So you would have white people on the school boards, too. Um, and so there were, you know, in terms of local funding in a county, it would go to the white, still white school districts and not to the black school districts. So there were those sorts of tricks that they were doing. And um, this, this emphasis on um, not educating all people is, uh, is <laughs> they, they asked the Justice Department to declare the NAACP a subversive organization. They outlaw in 1956 the NAACP. Um, and by making it illegal for anyone who is a state or county employee, so this would be school teachers, this is important, um, illegal for them to um, be an employee or have an affiliation with the NAACP. So um, you would have to deny the NAACP to keep your job. And this was because of the NAACP pursuing the lawsuits. So you could not hire and you would have to fire anyone who was an NAACP member or anyone who was a relative of an NAACP member. And they also, uh, the legislature decided to investigate the one black public college, South Car- which is now called South Carolina State, to look for an NAACP there. Um, and so they, there was a resolution to make every legal and moral effort to maintain segregated public schools, and this is important, and continue the American way of life. And this, this phrase is used a lot, that the American way of life is a segregated way of life. That's really interesting. Um, and even thinking about this, teachers, I know you mentioned in the book, the drop-off in the NAACP is a result of this was, was pretty dramatic, wasn't it? Even though people wanted to ma- maintain the organization, they felt kind of caught you know, between staying employed um, or outing relatives um, you know, in between a rock and a hard place. Oh, it was a terrible situation. And it's not like there were options. Like, well, if I'm not teaching, I'll go be a nurse. You know, um, they're, they're not options for, for people. So um, there were what were called citizens committees. And so they were you know, some of them were blinds for the NAACP. So there was that kind of effort, you know, to, to you would still be active, but you would be in something that was called a different, you know, had a different organizational name. But yes, it was devastating to the NAACP um, in terms of membership and and dues. And I'd like to add here, uh, I mentioned this at the very end of the book. This is, there's a repeat in um, the 1990s when um, uh, 
40 school districts in South Carolina sue because of inequitable funding. And these districts are 86% um, black and 88% poor. But when the, the case comes to trial, the judge rules that race cannot be considered. And um, we, uh, we'll stick to our other time period, but it's called Abbeville v. South Carolina, and it goes on for years and years. And because of that minimally adequate, only keep the schools open kind of constitution, there really is an enormous difficulty about doing anything. And eventually, um, Abbeville 1 and Abbeville 2, like Briggs 1 and Briggs 2, um, does not succeed at changing anything for anybody. Right. There's a, a very large scope of what's taking place in education. Um, absolutely. So I was really interested when you were talking about the 14th Amendment as being the basis for a lot of these arguments against desegregation. I also thought it was really interesting that we see other kinds of arguments being made, you know, the psychology of harm. So not just focusing on kind of the legal aspects, but looking at the emotional damage that it's doing to children, even beyond obviously the physical deprivations of being in, you know, poorly heated um, you know, schools without access to kind of, you know, running water and things like that. So if you could talk a little bit about the the, the angle that, that attorneys and a lot of the advocates for disease desegregation took in talking about, you know, the impact of having these schools and, and the impact it was having on, um, you know, black children, you know, little yeah. boys and girls. Um, I interviewed Andrew Reagan, whose family were um, green-eyed, very light-skinned hunters, house painters, um, kind of well-off in, in the county of Clarendon, um, in the town of Somerton. And Andrew said that he would climb a pecan tree outside the white school because the pecans were surely better. And um, there were so many students, um, uh, st- students of that time, they're adults, when, of course, when I talked to them, who mentioned... Um, the, the school buses, that uh, they would be walking to school. Uh, white kids had the buses and would drive by and throw things out, out the windows at them. Um, that they would get school books. They didn't get new school books. They got the used school books. They would have ugly words written in them, pages torn out. There would be old school books. And so it was very clear that their lives were not precious and the white children's were. And uh, as he said, you know, the white children had everything. They probably had better pecans than the pecan trees. Um, so I interviewed Celestine Parson, who participated in what was later called the, the doll test. And this was, uh, you know, a very famous uh, test that uh, Kenneth Clark had done previously, uh, about 10 years before. And then the NAACP had asked him to repeat it in Somerton. And he had come down to Somerton um, with four dolls. Two were sort of ivory colored. Um, These are sort of rubber dolls that have the hair painted on and they look like a baby, um, you know, and they have attached arms and legs and eyes that are painted on too, and brown dolls. And um, he's asking the children, you know, which doll do you think is pretty? Which doll do you think is smart? Which doll do you think looks like you? Which doll would you be? These kinds of questions. And and um, Celestine said the brown dolls didn't exist in Clarendon. She'd never seen one before. All she'd ever seen were white dolls. And she said uh, she started reasoning in her mind about what this person was asking. And she also knew that she was probably invited because her parents, um, Benny and, and Plummy Parson, had signed the first petition and the fa- her father had signed the second one in her name, that she had probably been asked because of the petition. So she knew it was related um, 
you know, to this effort to get equality. And now he's asking her about the dolls. So she went into, she said a reasoning in her mind and she decided because the only doll we can buy is a white doll, it must be the superior doll. It's the only doll available. And white children have all the goodies. They have the better schools. They have the buses. So white children have better things and they have the better dolls. And so this is the better doll. So um, that, that's how she's working it out in her mind as, as she's being offered these dolls to look at. And um, what Clark said was to separate others because of race generates a feeling of inferiority and it affects hearts and minds and it's unlikely to be ever be undone. And he was disappointed that while that was used in the Brown decisions, um, that his other point that it inhibited the development of white children is ignored. And um, there were other academics that came to um, the trial and did make those points. Um, uh, One uh, pointed out that the longer Southern Black children attended desegregated Northern schools, the higher their test scores became. And um, uh, uh, another scholar pointed out that um, when she, she worked with paper dolls, and so there would be paper doll houses and paper doll clothes, and that the black children wanted to play with the white white dolls, and that the white children would say really ugly things and want to tear up the black dolls. So there was an aggression element that was, you know, and a, you know, a hatred element that was being infused into these white children that was damaging them, these academics argued, um, in different ways, but damaging them. Um, and so the, the damage is, is full on. And South Carolina had encountered this kind of damage earlier. It was humiliated during World War I and World War II literacy testing for draftees because South Carolina's um, draftees scored so poorly. Um, worse, uh, the, the next to the last. Alabama was the last. They were the next to the last. And there was a study later in which black Southern draftees who had gone north to school, this is like Kleinberg, Kleinberg's um, study, uh, scored better than white Southern draftees staying in the South. So it's another comment about, you know, when you get an equalized education, which is not only, of course, about being with white students, but having all the things that white students have uh, in terms of good books, desks, blackboards, you know, uh, all those all those other things that are not just happenstance in terms of how education goes, that uh, there can be suffering um, without them and success with them. Interesting. So something you said earlier about um, the white press kind of stuck in my mind in terms of printing off those lists, you know, for the citizens councils to go after, you know, individuals who are active in the civil rights movement. So maybe you could talk a few more minutes about um, the press, since this, of course, is your background as a journalist. So you, you're familiar with the inner workings of the press, certainly. So uh, if we compare the white press and the black press and how they're kind of supporting different communities and what they're doing to either push back against civil rights or kind of move it forward, what does what does that look like, thinking about the role of the press during this period of time? Okay. Yes, my bailiwick, my territory. <laughs> so um, in the... Until 1954, there was a successful black newspaper in Columbia that had moved through a merger from Charleston called the Lighthouse and Informer. And one of the 
magical powers of Hinton was his ability to, to create a really strong team. And on that team was um, John McRae, who was the editor and the main reporter for the Lighthouse Informer. And he and Hinton were a team in terms of they exposed many of the lynchings that were being kept secret. The FBI would come in because of them reporting the lynchings and writing about them. And McRae would uh, go down just like Walter White did for the NAACP into communities as a stranger, which is very dangerous, and ask questions and and get the story of how people had been murdered. Um, So Hinton has a team, and part of that team is the editor of the Lighthouse and Informer. So the Lighthouse and Informer is a community newspaper, a statewide newspaper, and also a political organ. And John McRae and Hinton are part of a group that create the Progressive Democratic Party um, and this progressive Democratic Party is actually the sends the first delegates to a Democratic convention to challenge the all-white Democratic convention. So they're doing some really radical things. And unfortunately, McRae um, was imprisoned for libel. He and a white reporter had reported on a white woman whose father was prominent, who had a relationship with a black man. Uh, the white reporter nothing happens to him. McRae is put on a chain gang and um, he comes back bitter, disillusioned and ready to leave South Carolina and the paper folds. So the reporting from black newspapers is coming from outside South Carolina. And I have an upcoming book about um, Cecil Williams, who was a black civil rights photographer based in Orangeburg from the, um, uh, from the forties through the sixties. And he is alerting Jet Magazine and the Afro-American to, and the, and the Pittsburgh Post and Courier, um, excuse me, Charleston Post and Courier, the Pittsburgh Courier, um, a variety of black newspapers about things that are going on. But those black newspapers are having to send people into the state. So they can't come in. They're not there the day after something happens. Um, and there's money invested, you know, uh, far more money than if it's a local paper. So the black newspapers are writing about Briggs versus Elliott, for example, and they're going to the trials. Um, and they are writing about some of the lynchings, but the, the, the um, more local events are not being covered by black newspapers. The white newspapers are all segregationists, um, and the degree of that is different. Florence had... Um, a white editor that was actually run out of the state because he wrote some sympathetic editorials. But in general, the white news- newspapers are affiliated with the KKK and the WCC, and uh, they're uh, ignoring black life. You know, there's no reporting of black life, although they're very tiny, almost like newsletters that are reporting black life. Um, and they're uh, uh, they're reporting on that American way of life. You know, they, um, they're... Uh, aggressive in this. Um, The Sumter paper, for example, when the sit-ins start, and this book does cover the 1960 sit-ins, when the sit-ins start, the Sumter paper puts statements from the White Citizens Council on the front page, um, editorials about what's going on. Um, And uh, the uh, state newspaper, uh, which was the statewide newspaper, um, is Reporting similarly, um, you know, with um, sort of a how dare they kind of attitude. So when reporting is happening, um, 
black people are not quoted. They're not interviewed and probably be dangerous for them if they are, but their names are associated with whatever they have done, like a lawsuit. And there is an effort really to energize people to persecute them. So uh, they're, they're, I don't, what would you call them? <laughs> I, I, I'm sort of at a loss for words here. You, they are segregationist papers. Uh, there are, are political arms, whether they're an unbiased reporting, um, you know, uh, p- papers. Um, they're not by any means enlightened or ahead of their time. Uh, they're, they're just, it's very dismaying. When I first came to South Carolina, uh, one of the things I noticed that was a very common practice at that time, and I'm talking about the late 70s, was that white was default. So if you were a criminal, uh, you were a thief, but you were a black thief, okay? Um, and so I challenged that at the paper. I said, why, why are we doing this? Why, you know, we need to say white and black and Asian, or we need to not do that. Why are we doing this? So there were things that that lasted a very long time that were types of bias. One of the other things I challenged, and some of the black reporters and I did a study um, of uh, several uh, months of front pages, was how black people ended up on the front page. Well, what do you guess? <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> so, crime. Yeah. yeah, crime or scandal. Yeah. So, so there are those sorts of things still still going on. Um, but keep in mind, uh, schools had only been desegregated in 1970. There, so uh, th- there's still a, a, a sort of heartbreak in in my life about how. Um, narrow the vision was of people that should be out in their communities looking at how a community works. And one of the things, Matt, that was so interesting to me when I was interviewing these many, many people was no bitterness. So all the forces are arrayed against them. They're afraid their children are going to be harmed. They get up in the morning going out, knowing the Constitution by heart and perhaps trying to register to vote. And they know they might not survive that day. But when I talk to them, they're not bitter. Um, and that what, what they essentially said was that they knew what the Constitution had promised them, and they were going to work to get it. And um, there were some disappointments, of course. Um, but there, wa- there was not anger and bitterness. Now, some people did say to me, Many people died young because it was so stressful. And some, when I'm thinking about how I did generational interviews, some grandchildren or even children said, you know more about my parent than I do because it wasn't talked about with us because it was so scary. Yeah, so... So a lot of one of the reasons that I really wanted to do this book was not just that there was a missing story or a wrongly told story, but there were stories that were going to die with the people who had experienced them because they were not telling them and there weren't avenues to tell them. And if I may say so, um, and this may may sound like I don't really understand history, it's a shame <laughs> that history can still be stuck in great man telling and document telling because these are people that without documents, but they're, 
very, very, very important, brave, dedicated, noble people. Um, one of the my favorite people um, named James McCain taught nonviolent direct action up and down the East Coast. And he his children were among those who said, I didn't know my father. He was out there doing that. Um, and Mr. McCain, I, I just felt that he was I had met a true saint. And I was interviewing him in his 90s, and um, he had had some recognition of his civic work in, in his later years because he was a great citizen. But um, his stories, you know, his stories would have gone out with him. His family had me go into the hospital to talk to him, you know, so that um, his last stories could be collected. So one of the very strange things about working on this book was knowing that death stood right behind me or in front of me, you know, had already come. Right. So this has been great. Uh, we're running a little short on time now. So what I like to ask, uh, you know, a final question of interviewees is, is there something that you're working on currently? I think you already touched on something a little bit, but is there another book project that you have in the works? Um, and also you have a website, I believe, for this book as well. So if you wanted to, to plug the website, um, if there is one, you can certainly do that. Well, thank you. The website, storiesofstruggle.com. I have beautiful photographs. I'm very good about locating archival photographs. They help me tell the story for the people I haven't met or met old, and I want to see them young. <laughs> so there's some beautiful photographs there. Um, and I have two books underway. Um, one, as I mentioned, I um, have worked with Cecil Williams, who was a wonderful source for me in my reporting. He's a, a black civil rights photographer. And um, he photographed Thurgood Marshall when he was 11 years old, getting off the train for uh, Briggs versus Elliot. It's a photograph that's in many museums. Thurgood Marshall's in his trench coat and his fedora and has his briefcase in his hand. It's just a fabulous photo. And so Cecil um, had published his own books um, and they were all out of print. And I started hustling um, USC Press about, uh, you've got to have a a book of Cecil's photographs. So I worked with Cecil and it was very difficult because his photographs are stored in many different forms because he was using film. And then, you know, as you go into preserving the film in a variety of ways, it can be breaking, it can be cracking, it can be drying out. Um, it also could have been preserved by him in a different computer format from what there is now. Um, so we collected, managed to collect 80 of his photos, and I've done sort of a truncated biography of him from the 40s through the 60s through his civil rights career. And then I, I mentioned that I had taken uh, material out of Stories of Struggle, and I had... In um, the original Stories of Struggle effort, um, 1961 too, for the, the sit-ins continuing and the Freedom Riders, there were several South Carolina Freedom Riders because the bus riders were attacked in South Carolina and also their numbers were fortified in South Carolina. And it, it's sort of a bizarre year because it was the civil rights centennial and South Carolina was the place where everyone was going to meet. Of course, there were black delegates from Northern states um, and there was segregated hotels and John F. Kennedy had to get involved to get the black delegates housing and food. Uh, and there's Southern Bells wandering around in their giant skirts, you know. So it, it's a strange year. So I went back to USC Press and said, well, I would like to save, you know, the 1961 Freedom Rides and sit-ins. But I also am really interested in these other events. So I just finished... Um, working on the Cecil book. And um, I'm going to go back to 1961 and, 
and do a book on that strange year. That's great. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. So uh, it's been great talking with you, uh, Claudia Smith-Brinson, and learning a little bit more about stories of struggle, the clash over civil rights in South Carolina. Thank you so much for uh, meeting with me today to talk about this book. Oh, I'm so grateful for the opportunity. I, I, I truly am. Thank you very much, Matt. Okay, thank you.